Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our guests on the show today are Scott King and Jeff Gorman, the CEO and executive chairman of the Gorman Rupp Company, a $700 million market cap company that designs, manufactures, and sells pumps and pump systems to customers all over the world. 2022 has been quite an eventful year for the company. Earlier in the year, Jeff Gorman stepped back to chairman, allowing Scott to become the CEO, despite not having the Gorman last name. The company also completed a very large acquisition of a company called Philright. Given those events and all of the other challenges in the world today, I was excited to speak with Scott and Jeff about the timing of the management transition and the expectation that Scott continue the company's long history of dividend increases, the rationale for the Phil Wright deal and why now was the right time to take a big swing with some leverage, the importance of culture and the family-like values that have persisted over the last 90 years, where the company is investing in technology and innovation, and how the company approaches tough economic times given all of the different crises the company has weathered during its long history. For full disclosure, Cove Street is not a Gorman Rupp shareholder. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Scott King and Jeff Gorman of Gorman Rupp. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. Between the management transition and the company's largest acquisition in recent memory, the current moment seems quite pivotal. So I will start off with Jeff and ask about why this was the right time to transition from CEO to executive chairman. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today, everyone. Well, the decision to move Scott into the president CEO position has been in the works for, for several years. Uh, we do not have a mandatory retirement age. I had, and I had pretty much decided a few years ago that I should probably have my replacement in my chair uh, by the time I was 70, and that gives me about 45 years, <laughs> that's, I think I've earned a step aside a little bit. I'm not leaving, I'm just moving over, not out. So I was 70 in March, and so Scott moved to CEO, uh, and has been in motion for quite a while. So it's been a very easy transit, I think it's been easy, gone very smoothly. Uh, the Phil Wright actually did not have a thing uh, to do with it because it came after the first of the year. So Scott has pretty much handled that uh, entirely, Robert. And one thing as investors that we always think about is the decision between an internal candidate and, you know, whatever, leveraging all that information and knowledge that that someone has gained over years versus 
you know, a fresh perspective from someone outside the company who may bring experiences that, you know, the company hasn't, um, you know, hasn't really experienced. So maybe, maybe talk a little bit about how you decided to go with Scott as an internal candidate versus, you know, searching the universe for, uh, for the next CEO. Well, I, I guess you always take a look at that in your mind, but uh, you know, they had a lot of companies uh, like to compare outside candidates for top positions uh, with who they have in the shop or in the office right now. And I think this would be very true if uh, we didn't have a lot of turnover or had a lot of turnover, which we don't. So we're a long-term company, uh, especially on the management side. We, uh, we simply don't have a lot of turnover in top management. So we get to know our people real well and they get to know us. So even uh, if we make an acquisition, uh, the management of those companies that we purchase tends to stay with us for a long, long time. For example, we just had two retired that Scott, what, 45, 40, 45 plus years of both of them. I mean, that's pretty unusual. So uh, we have a pretty good idea of what that person that we're putting into the top role, whether they're going to be able to uh, handle it or not. And that was the case with Scott. There was never any real question to, Sure, the board does its due diligence to a certain extent and says around, but every time it came back to Scott's the guy and we're, we're going to stay inside. And we're going to talk about culture later as well, but um, you just brought up something that sparked an interest in me. I mean, having people be there for 45 years plus is pretty impressive. What do you, what do you think about the culture of the business? What do you think has allowed people to um, stay there that long and, and thrive for so long? Well, I don't know if there's any magic to it. Uh, we run our business like a family company, even though we're public. It's, a, uh, it's a still a very family-oriented culture here. And uh, I think most people are very comfortable. Uh, it's a Midwestern environment. It's not New York. It's not Chicago, not L.A. Uh, people, when they t- or employees, when they start to, with us, they tend to stay with us for forever. A very little turnover. And I know that's not the trend today with a lot of folks work a lot of different places, but we, especially in top management, uh, they tend to stick it out with us and we stick it out with them. So it's uh, it's just a culture that uh, uh, has worked many, very well for many, many years. And Scott, one thing we often worry about in a situation where the CEO steps back to executive chairman and the incoming CEO, is, is that the incoming CEO feels like he or she is being second guessed or feels like he or she doesn't have true autonomy. How did you and Jeff work to mitigate that um, in terms of your relationship so that you don't feel like you're always being, you know, someone looking over your shoulder? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, first, uh, Jeff and I worked together for 18 years now. So I've had a, a great opportunity to be very well trained in the principles Gormer Up was founded on and has operated on uh, for now almost 90 years taking care of customers first, building quality product, back it with reliable service, and treat your employees like you would want to be treated. Um, That works. It's worked for 90 years. It'll work for the next 90. I have every confidence of it. So in that regard, um, I feel like I'm pretty well trained. Jeff, of course, has a wealth of knowledge from decades of experience with our products and customers. um, And that's important, uh, the knowledge we we don't want to lose. And having said that, we have a very solid strategic planning process in place. We share it with our full board. And uh, I know I have the board and Jeff's full support, uh, encouragement to take the company forward with, you know, what our uh, total plans are for growth. And it's not just my plan. It's it's everybody's plan. I'm 
just the one who's supposed to shepherd uh, the organization through it today. And so let's move on to Philwright, as, as we talked about a little bit. So the company just acquired Philwright. Um, I mean, I think either one of you can take this, but maybe talk a little bit about what attracted you to Philwright and how you feel like it fits strategically and operationally with the legacy Gorman Rupp business. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Scott. That's been, that's been your baby. So, ben, it, it fits all of our acquisition criteria, and we have criteria that uh, we've laid out, uh, covered with the board, and that we share with the investment community. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about it. Uh, first, Philrate has product that Gorman Rupp does not have. Um, you know, they manufacture a line that um, we don't we don't manufacture today or didn't before the acquisition. Uh, it's they sell product into markets we know, primarily the agriculture and construction markets, and uh, Gorman Rupp really cut its teeth. Uh, in the construction market. And uh, so we know the markets. Uh, Phil Wright's uh, product is extremely high quality. It's an excellent brand name, number one share in the market that uh, they're in. And uh, that matches pretty well with a lot of uh, Gorman Rupp's uh, existing products. Uh, Phil Wright has a great management team. They're staying with the business. Uh, we're very excited about that group. Uh, they have big plans and uh, well, we're certainly going to support them in those plans. We've also talked about expanding some of those plans. Uh, so that's great. Uh, they have nice facilities. They have a well-trained workforce. Uh, and Phil Wright's been growing. They have additional prospects for growth. Uh, and again, we can help supplement it. So it really fit every one of our acquisition criteria when it, when it came up. Um, nice to see. And I was, as I was looking through your historical financials, it stood out to me that this company has not been very acquisitive at all, especially in the last five years, but really over the last, as far as I could go back. So, you know, this was a pretty big swing. Um, so what about Phil Wright? I mean, you, you described the, the, the structure of it, but what about Phil Wright was so differentiated that it would justify, you know, a, a pretty large swing on the, on the M&A side? Yeah, uh, Ben, I would say first, we were, we were a little frustrated that we hadn't been able to make uh, a great acquisition in, in recent time. It's uh, always been part of our growth philosophy. We've made many acquisitions uh, over our history and we'll continue to do so if, uh, when the right one becomes available at a price that's uh, reasonable. So we, we've been patient uh, as we've been evaluating uh, candidates, had always had a number of conversations in place. Uh, and then just thankfully, we found the right fit. Uh, Phil Wright's relatively large, you know, uh, for an acquisition for Gorman Rupp. And, and as we evaluated it, um, you know, it, it just felt like it was uh, it was landing at the home it was supposed to be. And the other thing that that is a little bit different about this acquisition is that um, it's adding a little bit of leverage to the balance sheet and to the, to the business model. I'm interested, you know, given that this company hasn't really had much net debt on its balance sheet, how did you get comfortable with with adding that leverage? Well, you're right. Uh, historically, we've, we've not had uh, much debt. Um, the nature of the quality of, of Phil Wright as a company and the combined cash flows of Gorman Up and Phil Wright, uh, meaning uh, we're going to delever pretty quickly. Uh, we publicly stated to less than three and a half times uh, EBITDA. And that's true even if you know interest rates uh, go up, even if there's a recession. We've, we've modeled all that out. And so, well, it maybe is atypical for us in our history to have that, uh, that kind of debt. Uh, for the right acquisition, it was it was the right thing to do, and and we're certainly comfortable having made the choice. And just looking at the you know kind of the, the, the financials you have presented for Phil Wright, looks like a pretty impressive business. And really, what stood out to me was the big difference in gross margins between Legacy Gorman Rupp and Phil Wright. 
So maybe talk a little bit about the products or industry structure. You said they're number one in their market, so that probably helps. But what allows Philwright to be able to generate 40% gross margins and close to 25% EBITDA margins? Yeah. Uh, first, it's it's a very, very well-respected brand. Uh, you know, when a farmer or a contractor needs a, a, a pump, they go look for the red uh, Philwright pump. It, uh, it's uh, a very sought after. Um, next, it's a high-quality product. Um, you know, when farmers and contractors use that, they need it. Uh, they need it to work uh, right the first time it does. Uh, and uh, if there are challenges with it, Philwright's very good about supporting those customers uh, in, in repairing the product. Uh, it's a well-run company. They have very good marketing and product management uh, skills within the organization. And they're also pretty effective at driving uh, cost out of the product without reducing the performance of the product or, or the quality that the, uh, that the customers experience. So uh, you know, just it's a very well-run company uh, in a well-respected place in a market that, uh, you know, they can command some price uh, for the product. And as you think about combining these two companies and how it changes both the organic growth profile of the business and also maybe capital intensity, which we haven't talked about, you know, talk about that a little bit. Does does, does capital intensity change as you as you add Phil right into the equation versus kind of the legacy operations? And then... What, how, what have you told people in, 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 in meetings about, you know, what does the organic growth profile of the combined company look like? So um, first, uh, in order to grow, you know, we, we've got to maintain the customer base and success we have. And that means uh, Phil Wright or Legacy Gorman Rub companies, very high quality products, uh, and great people backing them up with service. We, we won't break that model. That's uh, part of the competitive mode around the business. Uh, so additionally, uh, in organic growth, new product development uh, certainly allows us to sell more to uh, our existing customers. Both uh, Legacy, Gorman Rupp, and uh, Phil Wright have new product development plans. We uh, think at this point we're adding to Phil Wright's uh, new product development plans as we work jointly on, on their next uh, version of their strategic plan. Uh, both organizations are pretty good about going out and acquiring new customers, solving problems for folks that uh, in the field when they have challenges. Uh, we have our sights on additional international growth. Uh, in 2021, a third of Gorman Rep sales were outside of the United States, uh, and about 95% of Philwright sales were into North America. So not only will legacy Gorman Rep, you know, grow further internationally as we go, we've got a good opportunity with, with Philwright to do so as well. So from an organic growth profile, you know, we often get the question, is this a, is this a GDP business, right? Uh, no, it, uh, we certainly have opportunities beyond GDP. And if if I take you know regular organic growth, international organic growth, and then add acquisitions to that, uh, we think the future is pretty bright uh, for us from a growth standpoint. Capital allocation, I guess you asked about, I didn't cover. Um, you know, we have really haven't changed our priorities in that regard. Uh, we have a regular uh, and consistent method of investing in the business. That's our first priority. And uh, you know, from a, a maintenance capital standpoint, we'll add fill right right into the mix and continue on uh, in that regard. Um, we have a pretty good uh, policy on our dividend. Uh, you, you may have noted 49 years of, of increasing dividends uh, and current management doesn't plan to break that streak. Uh, the prior management did a pretty good job of it and, and uh, we'll, we'll continue on that path if at all possible, uh, which we think certainly is. Uh, you know, next we would have been focused on uh, traditionally on acquisitions. Uh, before that, we'll pay down uh, some of the debt related to uh, uh, to feel right. And so really our capital allocation strategy hasn't really hasn't changed as a result of the acquisition. We've just added uh, fill right to it, which is pretty well invested in already. And we'll continue to maintain good facilities, good processes, 
uh, invest in the people, invest in new product development. And I'm sure you you don't want to be uh, that 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 guy who comes in in the first 18 months has to break that uh, dividend string. So, um, <laughs> so but but again, like so so uh, you know we don't focus a whole lot on short term stuff on this podcast. This is more focused on long term. But the fact is, you know, since we had a last season of this podcast, you know, the R word recession is now on the tips of everyone's tongue. I'm so, I mean, I think everyone listening would be interested to understand this company's been around for a really long time. You know, how this company's performed during previous economic downturns and, you know, how, how would you expect to perform, you know, in, in a tough environment going forward? I'll take that one, Scott and Ben, if it's all right. Um, let's say we're recession proof is, is a stretch. We're not recession proof. I think everybody gets affected, but we probably, uh, and do function, uh, we're fortunate that when a recession does hit, uh, many of our markets are, are really necessities of life. People are still going to need water to drink. They're still going to go to the restroom. They're still going to have wastewater to contend with. I don't think petroleum is going to go away like some think in the next uh, couple of years. So uh, chemicals are still going to be there. There's a lot of things that are still going to need pumps. And it's uh, you, you use a lot of pumps whether you know it or not. Probably the orange juice you had this morning touched a Gorman Rupp pump or the last airplane that you got on went through a Gorman Rupp pump. You didn't know about that, but we're behind the scenes. And th those are just not going to go away. So we, our business may reduce some because of the environment or because of the recession, but it, we're very fortunate that it's still a very uh, mature market, but a very necess necessary market for everyone to have. So uh, that's my design. We want to be there. Uh, and, and that's another reason we're so broad with the amount of different products that uh, we hold in different markets that we're in. Because usually if something's up, something's down. But in a recession, when most things are down, that's uh, some of our key markets that are going to be uh, going to be there for everyone. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into company's growth, its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And Jeff, you know, this company has almost a 90 year history. I mean, just by my count, it's, uh, it's weathered a depression, 
two world wars, <laughs> multiple financial crises, and now, of course, the COVID period. So how do you think all of that and how a company that survived all of that and thrived through all of that, how do you think that influences how you approach a new challenging period relative to maybe a company that's been, you know, whatever, started in 2012? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, as everybody's talking, what is a recession? <laughs> yeah, that's going back and forth right now. But um, Ben, I would say that uh, we, we try to remain and we do remain very flexible. We're not structured because we're not owned by anybody. We can make decisions immediately if we have to. That's very good. And uh, you don't know what a recession or a depression, a war or anything like that, or even COVID is going to throw at us. So you, you've got to stay flexible no matter what you do so that you can adjust to the times. Uh, you take World War II, for example. Ford was making airplanes. They made B-24s instead of cars. Chrysler made tanks in, De in Detroit. I mean, you got to remain flexible because you, you can't really predict what's going to happen uh, tomorrow, especially in today's world where things happen instantaneously. So I would say flexibility is the real key. Uh, the other thing that we do we're probably different in is that when a uh, recession hits or a downturn, we increase our inventory. The pump business is, a, is an emergency business. If you don't have the pumps for your customers, like of all the shortages that are going on now, uh, we look at it as a, as a way to increase market share. Because if you get a customer out of trouble, uh, he remembers that the next time. And he'll remember the company that didn't get him the truck or get him the pump and the company that did. And we want to be the company that did get it for him. So he can be a customer of ours forever. And you mentioned being flexible. Another thing that's being thrown at companies right now is significant input cost inflation, wage inflation. There's just a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cost pressures these days that we haven't seen in a long time. This company survived through the 70s. So obviously you have some experience in that. But maybe talk a little bit about that general environment. So where are you seeing the most inflationary pressures? And then, you know, obviously everyone thinks they have pricing power and then they have to go get it. So, I mean, I'm interested, either Scott or Jeff, how you feel like that, you know, your sense of your pricing power has actually played out in the market. Go ahead, Scott. Thanks, Jeff. So, uh, Ben, it's, it's really everywhere. Raw materials, energy, freight, uh, labor. There just about isn't anything that that has gone up. Um, as far as input costs go. Uh, some of the most substantial are, you know, going to be uh, in, in things like, you know, electric motors and, and uh, uh, that kind of thing. Um, Gorman Up has always taken the approach into the market that, you know, we're, we're not the least expensive uh, pump in the market. We, we think we're the best pump and we think we have the best service. Um, but in order to do that, we've got to be reasonable uh, about pricing. And, uh, but we also have to protect the store, if you will. The company needs to be around in order to support uh, customers with repair parts in the future. And so we have taken pricing action into the market uh, to maintain margins, um, but we're also not taking advantage of the situation. You know, we know some of our competitors are, are raising prices with very little notice uh, and are doing so in, in ways that uh, we know have to be, uh, you know, outpacing their cost structure. Uh, we're, we're trying to be reasonable about it because, you know, we want to make sure that we take care of the customers who come to rely on us over the years as well as we can. Uh, and, uh, and, and also, you know, still protect the business, um, you know, moving forward. So we've had good success uh, in, in uh, pricing so far. And I want to jump to the international side because that was an interesting, as you talk about Phil Wright and the opportunity there, Phil Wright's 
very, very domestic focus. You guys have a, a, a fair amount of um, international exposure already. Um, in, in fact, you're selling, I think you, I think your, your, your website sell, says you sell in 135 countries. So maybe let, let's talk about the strategy, um, you know, of growing outside the U S and then, you know, how do, how do you think about taking the fill right products into the countries that you're already in, um, outside the U S so, uh, as you may know, the majority of our sales are, are through distribution. Um, and I would say it's important uh, to be able to support that distribution, uh, whether we're doing it from our, you know, the home office uh, in the U.S. Uh, that works fine in a lot of situations, but in, in many cases, it works better to support them uh, from one of our own operations around the world. And so, um, you know, our scale in a region, whether that's in the Americas or Africa or Europe or the Middle East, uh, is really there to support the growth of distributors in their home country. Uh, you know, we, we bring uh, distributors to our facilities for training. They bring their customers to our facilities for training. Our regional folks are, are in customers' applications, uh, reviewing, you know, pump applications, reviewing challenges if there maybe was a misapplied pump or, a, you know, a problem in the field. And so that international footprint as we continue to grow, it is really there to make sure uh, our distribution is the best distribution uh, and the, the, the most trained and, and the best able to support uh, their own customers, and, and that's working pretty well. And I would see Philright being able to leverage the same uh, footprints that uh, that we've established for uh, for GR over time. And one thing I often look at as an investor is like, okay, so this company is in X number of countries, and sales are you know X hundred million. Like, what does sales per country look like? Because that gives you a sense of of of, of local scale. And so when I look at that, I mean, it, it looks like you're doing on average, like less than a million dollars per country. How, how should someone look at that in terms of like assessing whether you have appropriate scale and whatever costs to distribute in this, in, into the, through, through the distribution um, or to supply the distribution into those countries makes sense from a, you know, whatever corporate margin perspective. Sure. So, you know, it's a balancing act of, of what infrastructure do we put in place around the world? Uh, and then, uh, you know, you've got to make sure that the distributor uh, in, in that location, you know, what we've noted over a period of time is there's really five things that make a distributor successful, uh, you know, in an, in an international market. Um, the first is that they're capitalized enough to, to do business. Uh, the second is they stock inventory in their, in their home location. Uh, the third is that they've got bricks and mortar uh, to be able to, to, to uh, work out of and, and uh, you know, store that inventory in. Uh, the fourth is they've got very trained uh, salespeople. We play a pretty key role in that. Uh, we also play a pretty key role in supplementing that inventory. If they you know, sell out of their own, we, we store it locally uh, instead of uh, them having to come maybe all the way back to the United States for lead time. Uh, and then the fifth thing is they've got to be able to service the product. And uh, you know, if someone's having a challenge and, and needs help in the field, the best thing that sells the next new pump is, is a pump that worked well uh, you know, in the field. And, and when it doesn't work well, for whatever reason, being out and being able to service it or offer a replacement is pretty pretty important. Uh, you know, relative to uh, less than a million dollars, uh, you know, per country. Obviously, there are some where we're stronger than others, and uh, for those where you know we're not as strong, uh, that's a double-edged sword. There's a lot of opportunity to continue to grow internationally, and it's one of the reasons it's part of our focus. Um, you know, we, we we have lots of opportunity uh, to go past that level. So, pretty exciting for us. You know, looking forward in that regard. 
And you mentioned your desire to invest in the, you know, both your own product roadmap and your and the Philright product roadmap. I'm curious about where you're investing in kind of advanced technology and innovation. I don't know. I mean, I'll leave it up to you. Is that sensors? Is that Internet of Things? Like whatever it is, like where are you investing um, in, in the product set? And then maybe also, you know, with the labor costs going up, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, innovation and automation within your manufacturing facilities. Yeah, thanks. So uh, the company does have a very long history of, of innovating. It's how we got into business in the first place. Mr. Rupp's uh, original innovation to help a pump prime itself better in, in 1933. Uh, that innovation today is occurring uh, certainly with the product. Uh, and, you know, let's talk about uh, a couple of ways that's occurring. First, it's it's in the iron, uh, in the actual pump itself. Uh, today, pumps are, are being uh, worked on here from an R&D standpoint to be more efficient, uh, maybe to prime better or an improved uh, ability to handle solids. And so there are innovations going on in really all three of those categories uh, across the product line. Uh, we also are doing quite a bit of innovation in controls. You mentioned Internet of Things. Uh, some of those controls can uh, help not only with monitoring, but help with pump efficiency, or maybe help a pump know that it's clogged and unclog itself, uh, those kind of things. Uh, a good amount of innovation into customer-facing technology. So today we're much easier to do business with uh, by electronic means than, than we ever have been and will continue to advance that. You know, one example, every pump that leaves our facility uh, here in, in Ohio uh, has a QR code on it that a customer can take a photograph of and reach a dedicated website page that has their test record, the operating manual, repair information. You know, they can even get repair parts through it if they choose to do so. Uh, we point them to their distributor because they're probably in stock and, and shorter lead time from the distributor. But nonetheless, uh, that kind of customer-facing technology is a is a is a now a, it's not just a a project we work on and then set it on the shelf. It's really an ever-evolving uh, uh, process. Um, research and development is getting a decent amount of of uh, technological advancements uh, into the ways we go about R and D. As an example, we got a pretty wide adoption of three D printing throughout all of our research and development uh, and pattern making uh, equipment for castings. That's been a, a good advance for us and has really shortcut uh, our design cycles and, and helped us be more cost-effective. And of course, you asked about you know, uh, labor and automation. Uh, our board has been extremely supportive of investing in our manufacturing processes and, and our facilities. Um, we have a, a constant cycle of, of uh, new equipment that's coming into each of our facilities. And generally when that new equipment arrives, it's more automated than it was. It gains us some efficiencies through, through capital projects and allows us to increase our capacities without necessarily having to seek additional staff uh, to operate it. So innovation is core to, uh, to maintaining a competitive mode around the business. Uh, you know, we're, we're good at what we do and, and we, we need to be better at it tomorrow because everybody else is trying to eat our lunch too. And one thing that companies have had to be really innovative about is managing the supply chain over the last, you know, whatever COVID now, everything that's going on, you know, supply chain bottlenecks and su supply shortages. How have you thought about your sourcing relative to maybe what it was in 2018 or 19 before, you know, all of this stuff? Have you had to change your thought of like, you know, domestic versus um, whatever international sourcing of parts, you know, manu offshoring manufacturing versus, you know, kind of onshoring? Maybe talk a little bit if anything um, about that has changed over the last two years. Yeah, the, the short answer is no, and, and we've been very fortunate in that regard. It's, it's because of our philosophies on the subject. So we, we did not uh, follow the, the rush to low-cost countries like you know, much of our competition did over the years. 
Uh, and the supply chain that we have uh, is very stable. Uh, it's very long lasting. We have great relationships with those folks. We're in their facilities often. They're in our facilities often. In fact, in a, in a number of cases on the uh, casting side of the business, uh, they actually share their financials with us. And it's not because we're trying to eke an extra uh, nickel out of them. It's because the foundry industry in the United States is, has, has been tough to operate in uh, for a while. And uh, we want to make sure that they're going to be around uh, in the future to continue to do business with. So based on the way we've interacted with that supply chain, uh, Ben, they, they tend to favor Gorman Rupp. And uh, today there, there is a rush from many of our competitors to try and get back to at least North America. Uh, every pump company you would talk to is evaluating foundries in Mexico. Um, and uh, that's not something that, you know, we've had to aggressively go do because our supply chain uh, has been able to outperform uh, others in, and we've taken care of it over the years. It's not to say we're problem free. Uh, you know, the COVID and the, and the pandemic is, has presented challenges for everybody. Uh, the good news is, uh, you know, when I talk to our distribution and I ask them, how are we performing? Um, you know, I, I it get, well, maybe, maybe you have a challenge or two that you, you didn't have before COVID, but you're outperforming the rest of the folks that we deal with. And that's important to us. It's, uh, it's part of our reputation and one that uh, we're going to maintain. And moving on to something hopefully more positive than supply chain issues and, you know, inflation and stuff like that. Um, so the U.S. passed a, a pretty large infrastructure bill. I'm interested, you know, we, we hear from a lot of companies that this is a very slow process of, of, of kind of, you know, seeing money being actually put to work. But I'm interested in hypothetically, if we do see a fair amount of infrastructure spending, how the company is positioning itself and, you know, historically has been positioned to benefit some, from, from that spending. You take that one, Scott. Sure, go ahead. Uh, I think we're already starting to see it, Ben. Uh, a lot of these so-called shovel-ready projects we've heard. Uh, many of those for cities, especially smaller and medium-sized municipalities, have had a lot of that shovel-ready, ready to go when they get funds. And especially after COVID, they're getting a lot of the, the money that the, the federal government just dished out. So we're seeing a lot of that right now in our primarily our municipal markets and water and wastewater uh, equipment. Uh, inf infrastructure touches us, uh, us all. So uh, uh, the more more sales, the, the more bills they have through Congress, the better we'll do. And we are already starting to see it. And I think it's gonna continue for quite a while yet. And I think, you know, there's there's always been this, I mean, every year you can read a report about how poor either the road infrastructure is in the U.S. relative to other countries or the water infrastructure is just like, um, you know, whatever, so substandard. And we have all these, you know, we have all these what are lead pipes that we have to replace. And there's just like whatever, so many billions of dollars we need to spend to get up to to speed. Um you know, but that's, it, but it's always seems to be like, it's, yeah, it's a next year problem. It's a next year problem. I mean, have you seen any change in terms of, especially specifically on the water infrastructure side, more focus on really correcting, you know, some of the infrastructure, whatever, um, what's the right word? I well, they, they wear out. We have. Fresh water will wear out a pipe over how many, 50, 60 years. So it's, in fact, there's still some wood pipe over in the uh, eastern part of the country. They, they dig up occasionally. So a lot of that has been in the ground or in use for many, many years. And it does wear out. And, of course, when they come in, they usually do not only just replace that component that's failed, they put a whole new system in. So that's what we're seeing that a lot of these uh, municipalities that have had 
challenges in their water and wastewater systems are going in. And now that the federal dollars are available, they're redoing their whole systems. Not only just the pumps, the piping, and many times the uh, technology to make it more up to date than what it's been for many, many years. Scott, any more uh, input on that? I, but it's definitely uh, helping us. Yeah, it certainly is. And, it, you know, as those projects are worked on, maybe one thing you didn't touch on, Jeff, is the contractors who work on them are going to need pumps too. You know, if you dig a hole, it's going to fill up with water and that hole has to be dewatered to allow that work to continue. So uh, there's a lot of ways in which uh, infrastructure investment helps the company. We feel like we're pretty well poised to, to take advantage of that. Maybe one other great way is uh, stormwater uh, work. Uh, stormwater installation, installations are uh, on the uptick right now too, which is uh, you know nice as uh, uh, you know, if, if, it, if it's caused by global warming, I mean, that's not the greatest thing. But uh, as you need to put a levy in to help protect the community, that works pretty well to keep stormwater up, but it keeps rainwater in and, and uh, that needs to be pumped back over the levy. And so we've had some recent uh, nice success in that, in that venue too. And we talked about uh, the importance of the Phil Wright brand uh, when we were talking about the acquisition. And an interesting thing I noticed when I was reviewing your presentation is that there, there are a bunch of different brands under the, the broader Gorman Rupp umbrella. So I'm interested you know, in, in the logic of maintaining separate brands as opposed to having everything under the Gorman Rupp name. And, and my sense is that you know, in specific markets and specific industries and, 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 and among specific contractors, for example, these things are really well known. And so you'd be crazy to change them. But I'm just, you know, from we're always like kind of 18,000 feet and trying to get the get farther down. So what, like, why is that that you why is it that you maintain so many different brands over time? Well, the, the, the GR Pumps brand uh, does carry a lot of weight with it. It's probably one of the premier, it is one of the premier lines pipelines in the world today and the applications in the markets that it serves, construction, industrial, wastewater, where we really got our core start. Uh, you won't find a stronger brand in those markets, but if you venture much outside those markets and the pumps that are needed for those applications, uh, the, the GR name is not number one because simply we don't make those pumps or we didn't make them before we made the application for the, uh, we, we purchased uh, uh, Patterson, uh, we were not in the fire pump business. Patterson put us in the fire pump and uh, uh, flood control business overnight. AMT with the utility pumps. Uh, we had those products, but AMT did a much better job in selling them, marketing them, and manufacturing than we did here in Mansfield. Uh, National, uh, we did not have a vertical turbine line. So that put us in the vertical turbine business for both municipal and uh, agricultural business. And now Phil Wright, uh, even though we had pumps that handled those, uh, Phil Wright did a much better job and focused in on specific applications that we did not for pumps mounted on tanks and things like that. So it's a combination of both. If you'll notice in all of our logos, we're saying the pump people now. So we are trying to tie it together somewhat with the Gorman Rupp name in a consolidated effort, but we're still not going to get rid of those individual brand names that uh, why we purchased the company or those are the names and the brands that are known within those industries. The Gorman Rub name isn't always there. And for people who don't follow, you know, the whole pumps industry, I think they'd be shocked at the number of different pumps that are, are involved in our lives and construction. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's astounding how many different kinds of pumps are necessary, but I'm interested, you know, it, it feels like, you know, maybe this is my naivete, but it feels like certain times, like cer certain companies focus on a specific type of pumps, 
um, and then kind of don't venture out and to try to compete in other areas where that is not their core. Is that a, is that a fair assessment? And 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 where and, and if not, where where have you seen opportunities just to to like take the Gorman brand or the Gorman technology into you know kinds of applications that you didn't used to to be involved in? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. I mean, uh, the Gorman Rub name is, as I said, is very well known in the construction market, the irrigation market, uh, wastewater, water and wastewater construction. But uh, for the fire pump market, for example, the Gorman Rub name doesn't, I won't say doesn't mean a thing, but it's not the leading brand. Patterson was the leading brand. People knew about Patterson fire pumps. They didn't know about Gorman Rub pumps. So the fact that we purchased them and, and we kept maintained that because as you said earlier, Ben, it'd be foolish to throw away that, uh, that brand name, but some companies do that in acquisitions. They become the X company pup instead of X pump company, whatever their, uh, their uh, corporate logo is, something like that. We think that's a mistake. So we try to kind of merge them both, both together, if you will, both our corporate identity, which we're trying to, Obviously, you always try to promote that somewhat, but the individual brand name or the market that they serve, is, I think, has to stay there. And is it basically you have to acquire into those markets, right? It's very hard to say, you know, we're going to go into a, an adjacent area, an adjacent market. Like we have the technology, but m- maybe you don't have the brand, maybe you don't have the distribution. And so yeah. it really just makes sense to acquire versus kind of greenfield a new a new pipe. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Not, absolutely. Not only in time, but in monetary that it would take you to either duplicate that line, unless you have a tremendous idea of how to improve what your competition has. And many times, if you want to break into a market, that acquisitions are the best way to do it. It's pretty hard to change the laws of physics. I mean, <laughs> you've got some bounds around there of what, how much you can change and you may be able to squeeze another point of efficiency out of it or, or a different material of construction, whatever it may be. But is there enough market to pay for the, the, the uh, design of a complete new line of pumps and the time that that would take you to do that and have from a two inch pump to a 10 inch pump. I mean, it's, it's, it's a major investment to break into a new market. So like we have done with Patterson, AMT, National, and now uh, Phil Wright, uh, we've elected to purchase and we wanna purchase the, the leader if we can or a very high uh, market share and uh, give them the support they need uh, and the monetary, the capital, and, and let them go. And you're in business pretty much immediately instead of many, many years. And if you do develop a new line of pump, there's no guarantee it's going to be better than what's out there. So it's a roll of the dice. Uh, that way, it's uh, you know what you got if you usually pay for something, pay a fair price for it, and good people, and let them go and, and stay in that business. I'd add, Ben, that you are right that uh, from a, a pump standpoint, uh, Jeff's dad, uh, Jim, uh, who's been with the company now, I think, well, paid for 65 years, he says. He's worked here a longer than that. But uh, anyway, he says uh, pumps are the number two commodity produced around the world. Electric motors would be the uh, the number one and, and pumps would be number two. And I, I think he's right. And it's interesting, Jeff, I don't know if you did this in, intentionally or not, but you basically described the moat around your existing business, which is distribution, brand, you know, longevity, and then some technology. But it's not, it's not, you know, obviously, if you can make it a lot, you know, some kind of whiz bang thing a little better, it, it's, it's helpful. But it's really, that's not the main, you wouldn't say that's the, the technology is 
is not the main driver of differentiation or, or am I wrong about that? Go ahead, Scott. I, the, the pumps certainly work. And, and in most cases they work, work better than our competitors. But if you were to say, you know, what's the competitive moat uh, around our businesses, it's the culture and the people within our, in our operations. Uh, they're the differentiators um, to our customers. They, they know the customers, the one with the money, they know, uh, they're going to take care of those folks uh, in any way they can because that's um, you know that's that's the best way to maintain what we have and the best way to grow. And that's a perfect segue to diving deeper into the culture. Um, so one thing about family-owned businesses is that they can often maintain a culture longer than if they are bought and sold by private equity every ten years. So maybe maybe talk about those cultural elements you try to embed. You know, you talk about it. You know, the importance of culture, but maybe talk a little bit about how, what you're trying to embed and discuss the ways maybe the culture has even evolved over time over the last you know ninety years or so. Ben, I don't know if I heard you correctly. Did you say that you think that uh, family-owned businesses operate can maintain their culture longer if they're bought and sold? No, no, then longer than if they are bought and sold okay. by private equity every ten years. Yeah, absolutely. Because I say every every time we we see a company that's bought and sold ten or fifteen times, or whatever it is, uh, a portion of that business leaves. That was there for why it got to be important in the in the pump industry or whatever industry. Uh, you can only cut the cheese so many times, and uh, I think private equity comes in a lot of times, purchases the company, takes what's good and left, leaves what's. Uh, they don't want for somebody else to pick up later. So I think it's been our history and our observation that w companies that once they uh, go in the market and if they're out there multiple times, so each time it's a little bit more thicker slice that comes off the, the pie. So if, uh, if you see a company go through a lot of ownership changes, I'd be real, real cautious there. So, but back to your question, uh, I think it all revolves around the customer. Uh, customer service and retention. The, the, the most expensive customer that you have is one you have to get back, that you made a mistake and you have, or you could have done something better and they've gone to somebody else and are satisfied with them. Those are the most challenging and most expensive customers to get. So our focus is don't lose that customer and not only try to meet his expectations, but exceed them. And that has been our real core uh, focus, no matter what the operation is, whether it's sales or warranty or whatever, work with your customer, do what it tells, not only what he expects, but exceed it. And it's been very, very successful. Uh, there's no magic to it. It's not me going around and putting up uh, signs on the bulletin boards or Scott. Uh, uh, we have to do what we say. And that's another big, important part of it is that uh, uh, manage your folks by example take a lot of my history and I when I was in sales I absolutely loved that and then probably the sales department gets mad at me because I still enjoy dealing with the, uh, the distributors and the customers and, and seeing what we can do for them and make sure everything's right but uh, it's uh, it all it all comes back to the customer I mean he they got all the money <laughs> uh, so take care of them and that'll take care of your business for you and so early next decade, this company is going to celebrate its 100th anniversary. So I'm wondering what a new employee comes in, what's the process of getting someone to appreciate that legacy 
and but also benefit from all the wisdom and 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 the the longevity that that this company has um, has enjoyed. Well, I'll let Scott talk about that, but I'll just first start it off by uh, saying uh, what I just previously said. You got to you got to lead by example. If if I'm out there, say take care of that customer, and uh, I'm not willing to do it myself or show them how to do it or they see by example that uh, this is how we take care of customers, not only when there's challenges, but when there isn't challenges. Um, that's a very important part of it. But for the new people coming in, Scott, I, I don't know. I came in 45 years ago. I just picked up <laughs> the book and, uh, and uh, my father made sure that I, I did, and my grandfather made sure that I, I did what I was supposed to do. So maybe a little bit better from your perspective of how the new people Take yeah, Ben's so question. At, uh, at 17, 18 years now, I'm, I'm just about average, it feels like, from a tenure standpoint. Um, Gorman Rep is different from the very moment you walk in the door for, for those who've worked um, uh, elsewhere. And, and, and I spent some time with you know, some other pump companies. Um, first, we hire people with the right attitude and, and the right outlook. Um, and then we train them. Our, our methods of operation aren't uh, typical. Uh, they're, they're different than most. Uh, and we set the expectation uh, right out of the gate within the customers who come first. Uh, that, that's part of uh, part of the fabric of the organization. The, the only time I've ever seen an angry Gorman uh, wasn't when we lost money or wasn't when we made a mistake. It's when we didn't treat a customer well. Uh, and and that, that says something. Um, and then, you know, once we have those those folks with good attitudes and outlook and, and they're well-trained, then, then treat them well. Um, let them enjoy the work that they do and the relationships that they establish with their coworkers and suppliers and distribution, uh, their customers. Um, that's what really drives, you know, the, the culture of the organization is set that expectation that, that we're going to take care of customers and then let, let people enjoy doing it. It's, a, it's actually pretty rewarding. And I'll also add in there our profit sharing program, which we started, or my grandfather and co-founder started you almost 90 years ago, which was one of the first in the U.S. and, and Ohio, has not hurt at all either. Our employees take a real, not only professional work ethics, but uh, I think it's their heart and soul. Uh, they, they feel part of the family. And a big part of their income is based on how the company does. If we make a lot of money, they make a lot of money and vice versa. So there's that. It's, it's a culture, but it's also economic base too that uh, we're only as good as our employees. And uh, that's my favorite day at Gorman Rep when profit sharing is announced. It's it's sizable and it uh, it gets the message across very well that we gotta we gotta take care of the customer. Yeah, and getting to the point of you know the culture fraying when it's the company's bought and sold a bunch of times, you'd much rather have employees who feel like owners, even if you know, even if they're way down in the organization than you know, Absolutely. then, you know, always being worried about who, you know, when the private equity company is going to flip them in a couple of years. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, you know, the um, Gorman Rupp as a, as a stock. So, you know, I recognize the last five years have included an industrial recession in 2019, COVID, ongoing supply chain issues. And now, of course, people are worried about another recession, you know, and, and this company's had a really great long term track record as, as it relates to the stock. But the last five years have been, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, maybe a little lackluster. So I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, is there anything outside of the obvious external circumstances that has been impacting your performance? 
and maybe talk a little bit about why the next five years are, are likely to be much, much better. Go ahead, go ahead, Scott, if you want. Yeah. It's going to be your baby anyways. <laughs> yeah, Ben, I, I would say, uh, you know, we certainly agree with the frustration over, over that subject. Uh, and, and I think I would attribute it to, you know, we weren't doing as good a job of growing as, as we needed to. Um, I think we've solved that. Um, and, and uh, you know, if, uh, if you read our, our recent information earnings release, um, it, Jeff mentioned earlier that it isn't often all of our markets are up or down at the same time. Uh, we're, we're uh, doing a pretty good job right now of, of expanding the fold uh, before the Philwright acquisition and now with Philwright as part of it. Uh, you know, I think we've got a very exciting uh, five years ahead of us. Um, we really took a, a solid look uh, three or four years ago at our strategic plan and bolstered that. It's uh, taking some time to uh, come to fruition, but really now is doing so. And so, uh, you know, we're certainly excited about uh, where things are going. Uh, you know, you mentioned the next five years and five years and and a long time to come after that too. And as a firm, we like to focus on key variables for companies. Like what, what are three or four things that are really gonna determine this company's success over our, you know, whatever our, our, our three to five year holding period. So maybe, you know, Scott, what do you think are three things this company absolutely has to get right um, for the stock to be a good investment for both uh, investors and your employees? Sure. So first, uh, it's to continue to take care of customers. That has to be the primary focus of the organization, and we won't change that. Uh, you know, second, we'll continue to, to execute our, our growth philosophy. Uh, domestic organic growth, uh, international organic growth, uh, and acquisitions. Uh, and of course, we mentioned the dividend policy today. We'll, uh, we'll strive to maintain that, uh, that dividend policy uh, of uh, 49 years of, of uh, increases uh, in, in the books and, and uh, we'll, we'll continue that uh, as we go forward uh, as part of our philosophy. So, uh, you know, take care of customers, grow and, and uh, share the proceeds with shareholders. And one, one thing that's really become prevalent these days is the, the topic of ESG. Um, and obviously <laughs> people have a lot of different views on, on, on what that means and, and, and the efficacy of, of, of ESG efforts. But I'm interested if, if just, you know, maybe investors plus your employees changing their views on, you know, what, 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 uh, you know, what, what a work life should be like, or what, what work life balance should be like. I'm just trying to get a sense if you've had to shift your company policies, if at all, to, to satisfy the desires of any of your various stakeholders. So um, th this does get some, some focus uh, in ways that uh, maybe has surprised, uh, surprised us the, the attention it has received in the investment community over recent years. Uh, Gormorup has always had a good environmental record. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not very cost effective to be uh, substantial waste generators and, and uh, you know, do things the wrong way in that regard. Uh, we've had favorable reputations in our communities. We're generally known as a, you know, an employer of, uh, a choice or, you know, kind of a, a destination employer. If I go to the grocery store, somebody asks, and I'm wearing a Gorman Rep logo, how can I get my kid into Gorman Rep? And it, uh, we, we do have great reputations in our communities. And uh, the company has rock solid governance. It's um, uh, been a tenant of, of uh, who we are over the years. Having said that, we're generally pretty modest. Um, we, we've not taken much opportunity to boast about uh, those aspects of, of how we behave. Um, and whether we like it or not, uh, looking forward, the investment community is asking us that. They want to hear more from us on, on those fronts. 
Uh, and Ben, we're beginning to share that story um, in, in the coming uh, months and, and years. You'll see more from us in, in, uh, on the subject than, than you have before, because we realize it's something that's uh, you know, important for us to be able to speak about. And so we'll do so. And Jeff, um, as you have taken on the executive chairman role uh, and you know, think about the family history here, your, your father and grandfather were involved. I'm interested in, in what, if, if, you had to, if you had to define your own legacy, um, what would you like people to remember about Jeff Gorman's you know, 45 years at the company? Uh, good question, Ben. Well, uh, well, first that I didn't uh, screw things up and run the com- company into the ground would be a top of the list. But uh, no, seriously, I'd say that I've, I like uh, people to remember me by that. I, I carried on the, the tradition of the company of customer service and the culture and the traditions that have made this company what it is today and kept it pretty much on track that uh, we had a lot of growth during my uh, sprint. Uh, we built our new facility here at Mansfield. We made a number of acquisitions, uh, but basically things ran pretty smoothly. Uh, we didn't have any work uh, interruptions. Uh, we got a lot of uh, rewards and uh, nice kind of uh, accolades for the things that we've done both locally and, and overseas uh, for the communities that we're based in. So those all, I think, help tell what, what Gorman Rupp is and that I've been very happy to uh, carry it on. And hopefully the next generation will do the same. But it's, it all boils down to quality products you know, that do what we advertise, uh, exceed our customer expectations, as I said earlier, and uh, keep a family environment in the overall, uh, everything that we do. Uh, we're not, we don't want to be run by Washington or New York or Tokyo or anybody like that. Uh, we're our own thing and we, we think we can do it better staying on our own and, and carrying the tra- traditions forward that have made this company what it is today. I think one consistent topic and focus of this conversation has been the more things change, the more things stay the same at Gorman. Um, but I, I assume that, you know, the, the world has changed a lot since since you first take, took over as CEO. I'm interested, Jeff, if there's any, you know, critical things that you've had to rethink or change your position on over the years, like major, you know, things that I thought the world worked this way, but it actually, you know, we can still stay the same, but, you know, we, we need to pivot a little bit to, you know, kind of maneuver to a, a new... Uh, a new regime or new paradigm? Uh, one that comes to mind right away is COVID. What COVID has done to most companies in the U.S. and primarily larger companies, Ben, uh, I didn't think probably a couple of years ago when this all started that we would be um, uh, working with a new environment or everybody, everybody working at home, <laughs> excuse me, and um, or working remotely. Uh, that's That's been a big one to deal with. I think we've handled it very well, but it's... Uh, it was, it was a new one, the new challenge. And Scott, in terms of new things, I mean, I could see in your position, right, a, a general hesitancy to rock the boat, even in the slightest, <laughs> even if you had a different perspective, because, you know, you know, you've worked together for 18 years, but, you know, I've, I've worked for our, for our founder for 11 years. And of course, we have our differences of opinion on any number of subjects. So I'm interested in like how you would approach you know, whatever, something, something slightly more, not revolutionary, but evolutionary in terms of 
business model changes or, um, you know, maybe capital allocation. I'm just interested if, if how you would approach that with the, with Jeff and the board. So uh, certainly in capital allocation, we're, we're, we're consistent in that regard. We haven't changed that philosophy at all, other than, you know, with the acquisition of fill rate, we'll pay down some debt, but those priorities remain uh, very clear and, and in the right order. Um, it, if I'm leaning on anything, uh, you know, more than we have uh, in, in my uh, in my tenure, uh, it's on the subject of growth uh, and uh, where that growth is coming from, uh, you know, incrementally beyond, um, you know, the, the things we've talked about today. We're developing more new products uh, in, in, in and around the spaces we're at. We've been more active uh, in, in the last uh, three or four years on the acquisition front. It's how Philbright. Uh, you know, ultimately came about. Um, I, I would, would never say Jeff and I agree 100% of things, you know, all the time. We have our, our discussions and, uh, you know, we share our points of view. And uh, in a lot of cases, uh, he'll look at me and say, it's your decision. I'm just telling you what I think. Uh, and he's been great about that. Um, and there's been one or two where he says, you shouldn't do that. And here's why I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> uh, but he's got a lot of experience that I, I, uh, I, should, I should not uh, ignore. Um, but I, you know, I'd say our focus on growth is is uh, front and center with all of our leadership at this point, uh, and uh, that's doing so, of course, without without sacrificing the focus on our customers. And I think it's a good place to wrap up. So we'll finish with our favorite question and the question we ask all the companies. And maybe Scott, I'll throw it at you because, as Jeff said, this will be your baby. So um, you know what. What would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your business or the stock or the company, right? That maybe maybe someone coming to it as for the first time as an investor wouldn't quite appreciate or understand. So I don't know that there's much that's misunderstood from a from an underappreciated standpoint. Um, you've heard it today from us. It's really how front and center taking care of the customers are uh, to our pro our, to that approach, the, the culture that we have around that subject it really reinforces the competitive mode around the businesses uh, and is, is core to our success. Um, and, and you've also commented on today as we've talked, the company's stability uh, and the consistent approach with, with which we navigate uh, our, our economic environments has really allowed us to perform you know, throughout economic cycles. And uh, right now we're in a pretty good economic cycle and, uh, and that's really highlighting um, you know, great performance in that regard. And, and, and we're excited about it. So I'd say those are the most underappreciated aspects of the business. Well, Scott, I will wish you luck as you, um, you know, take the reins fully and, and, and make sure not to mess up the dividend, uh, dividend history. <laughs> and I'll and, make sure you don't do that. And Jeff, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, an, you know, you guys have, you guys have been doing this a really long time. And I, I've always, you know, from an investor's standpoint, you know, I, I always am attracted to companies that can maintain employees, you know, for as long as you guys have. So um, good luck maintaining all that. And um, I'm sure I'm, I'm really interested to see how all of the growth initiatives play out over the next few years. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. It's been a, very pleasurable. Great, guys. Thanks again. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co 
www.thestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibiker.